there are at least two ways to see the Messiah's presence in the Old Testament. The chief would be the Lord's messenger. Dr. Reed Lessing, co-author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. The second way we see the presence of Jesus in the Old Testament would be through God's glory. Learn more about the Messianic Message at issuesetc.org. I think what we see emerging is essentially new forms of secular orthodoxy forming, and we can really view these modern-day hate speech cases as an equivalent, really, of the blasphemy cases of old. Getting your kids counter-programmed to have their social life family and community focused, this is generally what the research suggests is useful for a successful transmission of values across generations. The Lord does not set us to look for escape from trouble. He sends his church right into the midst of trouble. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. We're not taught to look for an escape from trouble, but to confess Christ and let come what may. Lord, thank you that I belong to a we. I am baptized into your church so that that even if I feel alone, I can pray the first word of the prayer Jesus gives me and know that I'm not alone. I belong to your church, Lord. This is Will from Michigan, and I'm a Lutheran high school teacher and football coach. And I love beginning my day listening to Issues Etc. All right, guys, let's go. When you consider the question of where Christ is found in the Old Testament, ordinarily we go to those clear predictions, usually in books of prophecy. Those clear predictions of Christ, what he would do, who he would be, how he would come, the salvation he would accomplish. So can we find Christ predicted and patterned and even present in the historical books of the Old Testament? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to be continuing our series, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament, with Dr. Andrew Steinman. We'll spend some time with Flame, Marcus Gray. He's author of a new book, Extranos, Discovering Grace Outside Myself. We'll talk about his journey from Calvinism to Lutheranism. Then we're going to answer the question, why I am not Eastern Orthodox. Dr. Jordan Cooper, Executive Director of Just and Sinner, will be alongside for that conversation. Yesterday, we interviewed Dr. Andrew Steinman in part two of our series, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Dr. Steinman is Professor Emeritus of Theology and Hebrew at Concordia University, Chicago. He's co-author of The Issues, Etc., a book of the month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. We discussed topics like where is Jesus present in the book of Genesis, in the first five books of the Bible. Let's pick up where we left off with Dr. With Dr. Steinman's answer to my question, where is Christ present in the historical books of the Old Testament? Well, right away we get to uh, Joshua, you know, the first historical book after we get out of the Pentateuch. And in chapter 5, when Joshua is preparing to go into the land and attack the city of Jericho, we're told that someone called the commander of the Lord's army, Yahweh's army, appears to Joshua. And Joshua asks, are you for us or for our enemies? You know, whose side are you on? He says, neither I'm the commander of the Lord's army, 
And Joshua bows down to the ground, puts his face down on the ground, and asks him, what does my Lord wish to say to his servant? Right away, he recognizes him as his Lord, as God. And the next words of the commander are very interesting. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. Now, for readers of the Old Testament who've read the Pentateuch, this sounds an awfully lot like Moses in front of the burning bush. And here we have the same person who appeared to Moses in the burning bush saying, take off your sandals, just like Moses had to do because the ground is holy. Now, you remember Moses at the burning bush? The story says Moses heard about this burning bush and he went to turn aside to see it. And Moses tells us, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And then, of course, the angel of the Lord is speaking to Moses from the burning bush saying things that only God can do. I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here again, we have Jesus' appearance, his presence, in front of Joshua as Joshua prepares to conquer the land. And so the messenger of the Lord is there. Now, the messenger of the Lord is is mentioned a couple other times in the historical books. In Judges 2, he would come to a place that would be called Bochim to pronounce judgment on Israel for their idolatry. And there they wept because the messenger of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, told them that he would no longer make their way into the land easy because they had begun to worship other gods. Well, they call that place Bochim because it means weeping. They wept there because of what the angel of the Lord tells them. In Judges chapter 5, we have the angel of the Lord mentioned again, placing a curse on a place called Maros because they refused to support the judge Deborah and the commander Barak in their battle to deliver the people of Israel from Sisera. He comes to Gideon to call him to action. He appears to Gideon, the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. And importantly, the angel of the Lord appears to Samson's parents and tells them that the woman is going to bear a child and that he will begin to deliver the people of Israel from the Philistines. And through their interaction with this angel of the Lord, the man, Manoah, comes to realize that they've seen God. He says to his wife, we have seen God. And he even thinks he's going to die because, of course, he's seen God. And how can an unholy human being live if they've seen the pure and holy God? But his wife, I guess, has a better head on her shoulder. She doesn't panic so much. She said, well, if God wanted to kill us, he could have killed us already. So they don't die, but they do indeed have Samson. So we have the angel of the Lord cropping up again in the book of Judges. Second Samuel 24, the messenger of the Lord, angel means messenger. He's the one who meets out punishment on David and his people when David took the drastic step of trying to take a census to see how many men he could raise for an army. He was supposed to trust in God for his army. Success is not in his number of men. There's a punishment there. It's the angel of the Lord who meets out that punishment. And it's to the angel of the Lord that David appears to get 
the plague stopped so his people wouldn't be punished. In 1 Kings 19, the messenger of the Lord strengthens Elijah when he flees from Queen Jezebel on his way to Mount Horeb. And it goes on and on when when we ever we find the angel of the Lord. We find the angel of the Lord delivering Jerusalem in Hezekiah's day, killing the army of the Assyrian king Sennacherib and sending him back off to Nineveh, his capital city, in defeat. So the angel of the Lord defending his people there. So throughout the historical books, we meet this angel or messenger of the Lord. And the presence of Jesus with his people is already there in the Old Testament before his incarnation, before he took on human flesh, showing his concern both in the law where he condemns their sins, but also in deliverance as when he delivers them from Sennacherib's army. Dr. Andrew Steinman is our guest. It's part three of our series, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. We'll answer the question about the wisdom books of the Old Testament, where the Messiah is found in them next. Issues Etc. regular guests Dr. Reed Lessing and Dr. Andrew Steinman are the authors of our Book of the Month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. This new book is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or learn more about The Messianic Message at issuesetc.org. Study the Old Testament through a Christ-centered lens with the Issues Etc. Book of the Month, The Messianic Message. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. The Light of God's Word in a World of Darkness. You're listening to Issues Etc. Teaching your student to read should not be complicated. Memoria Press's Phonics uses common sense and the classical approach with their First Start Reading program for the most effective and efficient way to teach your child how to read. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Register today. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through the 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky. The conference includes visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Online registration is open now with early bird pricing at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Lutheransforlife.org Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. 
We're finding Jesus in the Old Testament, part three of our series. Dr. Andrew Steinman is our guest, co-author of the Issues Etc., Book of the Month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. Dr. Steinman, what are the wisdom books of the Old Testament, and where do we find the Messiah in them? The wisdom books of the Old Testament are, first of all, Job, and then certain Psalms. We wouldn't say all of Psalms is a wisdom book, but we could classify certain Psalms as wisdom Psalms. Definitely the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes. And then some people would classify Song of Songs as a wisdom book. Others would say, well, it's kind of on the border of wisdom. But for our purposes, I think we can lump it together with the other poetic books of the Bible as wisdom. And one of the important places we find this is in the book of Job. In several instances, Job seems to realize that he needs to have someone to come between him and God. Job, of course, does not know why he's suffering. If we read the beginning of the book, we know where Job's sufferings came from, but Job doesn't. All he knows is he's suffering and he appeals to God to stop his suffering. And Job in chapter nine already realizes God is not a man. So he wants somebody who can stand between him and God. He's a human being. God is not. And he wants somebody to stand in between. And so he he calls for an arbiter, an umpire, if you will, who can lay his hand on both of us, he says in verse 33 of chapter 9. So already Job is picturing someone who can be a reconciler between him and God. And of course, He's longing for his Messiah. He actually refers to this mediator as someone who would remove God's rod or staff from him. And this is interesting because the same words used in 2 Samuel 7, 14, when God said that if David's successors don't properly follow God, he would chastise them with a rod. So there's a connection here with that famous promise to David. Then in chapter 16, Job is looking for someone who could argue his case before God. And he wants somebody to do this as a son of man does this with his neighbor. Now, son of man is an interesting term in the Old Testament. Oftentimes it means human being. He's looking for a human who can argue his case before God. Well, the only human can do that is, of course, the coming Messiah, who would be both God and human and could indeed argue the case before God for Job and for everyone else. And then perhaps the most famous place in Job is Job chapter 19, where Job makes the very startling statement, I know my Redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth. Now, Redeemer is a very interesting word in the Old Testament. It's a word used to describe Boaz back in the book of Ruth. It's a person who the law of Moses appoints to be a defender of people, especially their kinfolk. And here Job is looking forward to seeing his Redeemer defend him. And he says that his Redeemer would stand on the earth. He's going to be human in order to stand on the earth. And not God, but 
also God and man in the flesh. And he says he will do this at the end. He's looking forward to the final judgment because Job says, in my flesh, I will see him. So Job believes in the resurrection, a resurrection that comes in the Redeemer that he's speaking about. So very important passage because Job says, even after my skin's destroyed, I will see him with my own eyes. He's going to be resurrected, have his eyes back and be able to see his Redeemer. So Job is very good at talking about this person. He'll do it again, by the way, in Job chapter 23, where he looks for a mediating messenger to come between him and God. So Job does this in a number of ways. Then later on in the book of Proverbs, we get Proverbs chapter 8, where wisdom is depicted as a person. And through this person, we're told God created all things. And this person, wisdom, rejoiced in God's creation. And it's interesting that the New Testament, again, connects this person with Jesus. Now, it's interesting also that wisdom in chapter 8 of Proverbs is depicted not as a man, but as a woman. This is because the Hebrew word for wisdom is feminine in grammatical gender. And so it's very easy for Solomon in Proverbs 8 to depict this person as a woman. But, you know, Jesus sometimes even depicts himself in female terms. For instance, Matthew 23, when he mourns over Jerusalem, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So Jesus here compares himself to a female figure, a hen. So also Jesus is depicted that way in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom appears in the opening chapters, but most importantly in chapter 8, where wisdom calls on people to see her, and invites people to hear her words, just as we're invited in the New Testament to hear the words of Jesus. And wisdom is there at creation, just as Jesus was at creation when all things were made. So this is a very important thing. The attributes of wisdom that we find in Proverbs 8, by the way, are mirrored again with the gifts of the Spirit that we find in Isaiah 11 too. So again, wisdom is divine and has the divine attributes that Isaiah connects with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is God, just like the Holy Spirit is God, and they both have those same divine attributes. It's interesting, too, that in the New Testament, Paul calls Jesus Christ the wisdom of God. So I believe that Paul very clearly understood Jesus as wisdom in chapter 8 of Proverbs. And in Ephesians 3, we see this parallel played out in Paul's writings, where just as in Proverbs 8, wisdom gives riches. So in Ephesians 3, Christ gives riches. In Proverbs 8, wisdom participated creation. In Ephesians 3, wisdom is linked to the God who created all things. God's wisdom empowers rulers in Proverbs 8. God's wisdom as Christ is made known to rulers in the heavenly places 
in Ephesians 3. So Paul very clearly is making a connection to Proverbs 8. Later on in Proverbs, Proverbs 30, we encounter the sayings of Agur, the son of Jaka. In Proverbs 40, he issues some challenges to his audience. He says to them, who's ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. The first question comes from Deuteronomy, where Moses notes that Israel doesn't need to go up to heaven and come back down to get God's word. They already have God's word through him. It's God himself who goes up and down, who's gathered the winds in his fist and wrapped the waters and established the ends of the earth. Well, of course, these are God at creation. But then he says, what's his name and what's the name of his son? Now, if you were living in Agur's day in the Old Testament, you could say what the name of God was, Yahweh. But you could not say what the name of his son was. That would not be revealed until Gabriel reveals it in the New Testament. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So he's challenging his audience to be wise and to seek the name of the Son of God. And so here we have um, the existence of the Son of God affirmed in Augur's own words. And yet the name of the Son of God will not be revealed until we read it in Luke chapter 1, where Gabriel tells Mary, you shall call his name Jesus. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we don't get a lot of direct references to the Messiah, but when we get to the very end, we get something interesting. And near the very end of the book, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 11, where this book is being summarized, it says, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings given by one shepherd. Now, of course, God is shepherd, very important. Elsewhere in Ecclesiastes, he mentions God many times, but only one time in the book does he mention him as shepherd. And this should alert us to something very important. The prophets later on will use the shepherd imagery to talk about the Messiah, Ezekiel chapter 34. And of course, in the New Testament, we're all familiar with Jesus calling himself the good shepherd. And Peter will, in his first letter, call him the shepherd and overseer of the souls of God's people. And so in Ecclesiastes, we're told that this wisdom that the writer of Ecclesiastes is giving us comes from one shepherd, from the Messiah. Finally, we could look at the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, whichever you want to call it. The Song of Songs teaches us a lot about marriage. It's about the two main characters are a man and a woman who are looking forward to their marriage, celebrating their marital love. And from ancient times, the people of Israel read this not simply as instruction about marriage, although it has a lot to say about that, 
but also as a picture of God's love for his people, God being the husband and the people being the bride. And this, of course, is filled out for us in the New Testament. The church is called the Bride of Christ by Paul in chapter 5 of Ephesians. And of course, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 21, we have the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, adorned like a bride. And of course, this is the marriage feast of the Lamb that the book of Revelation talks about. And so the pattern that we have in the Song of Solomon, not a direct prophecy, but a pattern, the husband and wife, and they're expressing their love for one another, a holy love that they wish to express in a holy way, points us to also another relationship, the relationship between the Messiah and the people he redeemed to be with him forever. So finally, how does the Old Testament, all of it, testify to Jesus? Well, not only in these patterns, prophecies, and predictions, but also by all the other words that are there. Now, not everything in the Old Testament is a direct reference or even a pattern about the Messiah. But all the stories are there to show us how God is working through history, through his prophets, through the people of Israel, through the kings of ancient Israel, to bring forth the first promise he gave to our first parents in the Garden of Eden that some would come, someone would come to strike the serpent's head and undo the work of Satan that happened when Adam and Eve fell into sin. And so even when we're reading in the book of Kings and we're reading about one or other of the kings and we don't see anything there directly about Jesus, it's leading us to something that will tell us directly about Jesus. It's showing us how God was working through history to do that. When we're reading the prophets and the prophets are complaining about Israel's sin, well, it's reminding us in an indirect way that that's why the Messiah was promised, to overcome sin and death. And so the Old Testament is ultimately all about Jesus, even in those parts that aren't directly talking about Jesus. And in this book, we don't claim that, you know, every verse is directly talking about Jesus or every verse has a pattern that reminds us of Jesus or is speaking about the presence of Jesus. But nevertheless, it all works together to point to the Savior who would come. And that is why when we get to the New Testament, so much of the New Testament keeps on referring back to the Old Testament especially when it's speaking about Jesus. It refers to some of these prophecies in the Old Testament. It refers to some of these patterns in the Old Testament. And it also refers to the presence of God in the Old Testament, not quite as directly as the Old Testament does, interestingly enough. But it nevertheless takes all these three predictions, patterns, and presence into itself in the New Testament to show us that that's what the Old Testament was talking about all along. Dr. Andrew Steinman is Professor Emeritus of Theology and Hebrew at Concordia University, Chicago. He's co-author of The Issues Etc., a book of the month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. You can purchase this new book by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040 
or browse before you buy at issuesetc.org. Dr. Steinman, thanks. Thank you, Todd. When we come back, we're going to be spending some time with Flame, Marcus Gray, talk about his journey from Calvinism and its doubt and despair to confessional Lutheranism. Stay tuned. Sanctified us in the true faith. Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com. LutherAcademy.com Sanctifying your yard work with the Word of God. You're listening to Issues Etc. I think every man, every Christian should consider, at least, the possibility of God calling him into the holy ministry. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Carl Fakencher of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Because that's the way that God has designed for faith in Christ Jesus to be spread, for the gift of eternal life that Christ Jesus earned by his death and resurrection to be shared with people, by the washing of baptism for infants and for adults, for the instruction, the proclamation of the word that happens uh, on a nonstop basis in God's kingdom. God uses people, he uses men, to be those proclaimers, to be those men who who share the, the sacraments. If you've ever considered becoming a pastor, contact Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Their phone number, 1-800-481-2155, 1-800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu.